Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Hey guys, welcome back to Mom Brain. I'm Ilaria. And I'm Daphne. And today we're talking um, to Dr. Thomas Frazier, who is the Chief Science Officer at Autism Speaks. So you guys might know April is Autism Awareness Month, so we wanted to do an episode on the topic, and obviously, you know, an hour barely scratches the surface on this incredible field and the new knowledge that's coming to the surface, but we are very lucky to be talking with Dr. Frazier. He has so much to say on the subject. Um, and we know you guys are going to love this episode. And this is a a topic that is very emotional, for, I think, for for almost everybody. I mean, even if we don't have someone in our family who has autism. And there's a lot of really great resources. And, you know, talking to Dr. Frazier today, I think, taught me, I don't know about you, Daphne, but taught me uh, about um, resources out there and and kind of and what you do when when this is uh, that's something that comes into your home. No, it was it was wonderful to hear from him, hear from him as an expert, but hear from him as a father, first and foremost, of a son who who struggles with autism and a son who who has been able to benefit from both of his parents, as it turns out, incredible knowledge in this space and incredible passion for um, for early intervention, which we talk about, the kinds of therapies that have really been proven to help people deal with their environment, deal with social cues, deal with communication, deal with um, all these different elements uh, of autism and do it in a really positive way. I think he, um, you know, I think he'll be really uh, I'm interested to hear the, like you said, Alaria, the way that this research is constantly evolving and the way that we're learning so much more about the spectrum of it and, um, and how to, you know, if you're a, if you're a parent of young children, what are the signs you can be looking for and, and aware of early on, especially cause look, we are the first line of defense. You're with your kids all the time. We we are we do live in a research society and everyone, you know, goes deep on everything and wants to learn everything. And and the best thing we can do is prepare ourselves first with right information and then with good therapies and good techniques and good ways of enforcing good behavior. And by the way, that's for all kids. Something else he said that I thought was really powerful is a lot of the um, the interventions or the techniques you might use on, on a child with any kind of either learning or behavioral disability is inevitably great for kids of all, you know, of all kids. So, um, so I think you'll be really fascinated to hear from him. So much great information. Alari and I barely ever talk. So, so, so that's, that's a change that's for a change. those of you guys who are frequent mom brain <laughs> listeners. This is the most you will hear us talking this entire episode. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, again, this is something that is, that is in the works in terms of people understanding it more and more and more. I feel like this is something that all of us can, can get together and, and, um, and help with research and help with walks and help with, you know, it, I, it is for me, it's this and it's cancer research. It's all uh, that really makes my my heart want to to get involved with um, with other people, because I feel like the more that we understand this, you know, the the, the better answers that we can have. And, and you already see that answers are, are really coming quickly in this field. So enjoy. I'm sure this is going to be fascinating for you. This is a fact. 
So this goes at the beginning. The we beginning let you introduce yourself. We, we used to introduce people. We give people you the hard job. And, and exactly. We used to introduce people and it never sounds as good as when it's coming from your mouth. Sure. So uh, I'm Thomas Frazier. I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, uh, I joined Autism Speaks a little over two years ago. And before I was at Autism Speaks, I was at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, I still live in Cleveland with my family. I have uh, a wonderful wife who I mentioned is a board certified behavior analyst and works with people with autism. And I have two children. My son, Sean, is 15. He has autism and intellectual disability. And my daughter, Emily, is 14. And she is probably a little bit too neurotypical. Uh, at this point. Um. So, I mean, you know, obviously this is um, a a big topic. Autism is a big topic and it's one that over the past, I would say probably, I mean, you'll, you can speak to this better than us, a couple decades it's been understood better and better and early screening is extremely, not only important, but it can be helpful and can completely change children's lives and and parents' lives. So, um, you know, I mean, we definitely want to talk about screening. Um, I want to talk about, you know, as a mother, I I have four children and Daphne very soon is going to have four children. Um, And it was, it was something that I was very nervous about when I had kids. And, um, and you hear these things where you have a completely, I don't want to use the word normal, but average child. Um, And then, you know, all of a sudden one day your child turns around and goes into a corner and and doesn't speak to you anymore. And that idea of losing my my child was terrifying to me. Um, And I feel like there's there's not a lot of understanding surrounding autism. So can you speak to us a little bit about uh, what autism is? um, What are early signs? is it something that you believe that kids are born with? Is it something that happens to kids? Um, sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I am really excited to speak with both of you today. Uh, it's an honor for me. Um, I think it's really important for people to know the early signs, obviously, as you said, screening is crucial and um, getting kids screened early allows us to get them into intervention early And so that's why we're so focused on this, because we know that early intervention matters for kids. It changes their developmental trajectories. It really improves the quality of their lives, the lives of their family, um, if they can get the right treatment. So obviously getting kids in early is really crucial. And part of getting kids in early for screening is having parents and other family members understand the signs, the really early signs. So... um, so we so generally here's what we look for. By six months of age, your child should be engaging in something called like social smiling, where it's sort of a back and forth. If you you guys you're you have multiple children, so you know this, but when they're really little, obviously they're not doing a lot, they're kind of laying around, but but they they're still actually quite interactive, right? Human brains are meant to be social detectors. Our brains are built from the very beginning to detect social information, information that's relevant to us, that's emotionally and socially important. And so not surprisingly, mom's faces are really important to babies. And um, so that baby should be attending to your face. And And if you smile, there really should be some reciprocal smiling back and forth. So that's sort of an early, a really early sign to look for. By 12 months, then you should be seeing some babbling. And a lot of times people get confused about this. Babbling is not 
uh, any sound, right? If, if it's not a shrieking sound, it's not a, uh, just a repetitive sound. Babbling is like your child is speaking a different language, a language that you don't know, but it sounds like a language, right? So if you go to France and you don't know French, you know, that's what it sounds like, right? It's, it's, it's like a language. So, um, you should be seeing the babbling by 12 months. You should see a lot of back and forth gestures like pointing, um, come here, reaching, waving, um, showing things, sharing. Um, so these things should be there by 12 months. And one of the earliest and most reliable signs and one that parents can really reliably pick up on is how the child responds to their name. So around 12 months or even before 12 months, you can call the child's name and they should respond. They should orient to their name, right? It doesn't have to be a great response. It's not like they have to come running to you, but they should respond. They should be acknowledging that you're calling their name, right? Because by then they've associated this word, their name, with the interaction, right? Um, and then as kids get older, you want to look for things like, are they using single words? So by 16 months, you should be seeing single words. By 24 months, they should be putting two words together or multiple word phrases together, right? And, um, and then as kids get older, you want to look for other things too. Like, for example, if at any age a child seems to go backwards in their development, that's not a good sign, right? You want to make sure you talk to the pediatrician about that. You can also sometimes see repetitive behaviors associated with autism as kids get older. So some examples of this, even when kids are young, you can see them sort of staring at objects, water, lights, fans. Um, as they get older, you might see um, that they flap their hands or look out of their corner of their eye and flip their fingers, sort of like I'm doing right now. So just sort of that idea of just um, looking out of the corner of your eye instead of making good social contact. Um, and then you can even see jumping in place, spinning repetitively, um, and other kinds of repetitive behaviors. Um, some kids with autism, but not all of them, are less interested in social interaction. And this is very confusing. Um, I'll still have parents or even some doctors who will say, I don't think this child has autism because they're really socially interested. Well, it turns out that's only a subset of kids. That, that actually there's plenty of kids with autism that are socially interested. The problem is they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to engage in the back and forth of social interaction. So those are kind of some of the early signs you want to look for. Um, obviously, as kids get older, they should be more reciprocal in their interaction. They should be looking at you, exchanging glances, uh, initiating, pointing and gesturing, these kinds of social behaviors that we want to see. What would create that slip back that you just that yeah. you described? We don't exactly know what creates it. Um, it's possible that in some kids there's a, what I would call a true neurological regression where um, the child sort of had some skills and then they lose these skills. So there may be as many as 20 percent of kids with autism that show some kind of behavioral or neurological regression. Like they might be speaking and then they stop talking for either several months and then they start up again, or some kids actually were talking, maybe using single words or two word phrases, and then they stop and they never start again. Um, but we don't know exactly why. We do have some sense though. So for example, there are some kids that have seizure disorders or epilepsy. 
And you can see the onset of those seizures around that time. And as a result of the seizures and some of the brain development that goes around seizures, that can cause a regression. But in other kids, we honestly don't know. I mean, uh, my son regressed at about um, around 20 months. And, um, you know, it was very confusing to us. We didn't know why he regressed. Um, and uh, he just sort of stopped talking and initiating with us. And then, you know, eventually he did start talking a little bit again, but then he actually regressed back again. So unfortunately, it can be very, very scary for parents and, and extremely um, difficult for folks to understand why is a child going forward and then all of a sudden going backwards. What is the, uh, I've heard a lot about you screening or at least beginning intervention before the age of two. And that being, on the one hand, very hard to identify with any certainty, but the signs you're describing are things that are really helpful for parents to sort of, we observe our kids all the time for us to pay attention to and try to see early on. But what is it that happens before, is it just brain plasticity that happens before two that really lets intervention take hold and, and, um, and, you know, how does that early intervention really help children struggling through this? Well, a couple of things. So there's nothing, thankfully, there's nothing special about age two, right? So really, it's the, the actual mantra is just earlier, the better, right? Um, now, obviously, if you can initiate treatment at, a little before or at age two, that's fantastic. Um, and there's even been some studies to suggest that if you can identify kids around 14 or 15 months and you can start intervention then that you can really help those kids as well. So, so yes, we do want to start as early as possible. And, you know, we, we try to get kids screened at 18 and 24 months with the idea being that if they can get an early diagnosis, we can get them in around that age two mark. Um, but what really matters and the reason why early intervention is so important is the earlier we are in our lives, the more our brain is plastic, the more we can actually see our brain growth uh, change in a positive direct direction. So it is about plasticity. But the other thing to keep in mind and here is that, you know, if you're a parent who maybe came to this a little later, our, our brains are still plastic. <laughs> our brains are plastic up through adulthood. And so, yes, we want to get kids in early. We want early intervention. But, you know, don't feel bad about identifying it later. Just try to get the child into, into intervention as soon as you can. What, um, I think, look, I think there's been a lot of talk about autism. People are becoming more aware of it, but I think a lot of people are still confused about what it actually is because it is a spectrum because as you described, there are some kids who have completely different symptoms than others. And, um, and I think it's confusing to people, uh, especially as we watch our own kids grow up and we want to, you know, we want to always be on high alert to anything that, that they might deal with. Um, so can you just, I mean, and I know it's probably, you know, repetitive for you, but if you'll just sort of walk us through, what is it that we're talking about here? So a couple of things people should know. One is autism is an early developmental disorder, right? And what I mean by that is, is in the vast majority of cases, autism brain development, the brain development that is contributing to the behavioral signs we call autism, is starting very early in life. For many kids, it probably starts in utero during pregnancy. Okay. So that's really important for people to understand is that 
we have evidence now that that this is starting very very early in life for the for the majority of kids at least okay but the i do agree with you people do get confused about what is autism and i i try to boil it down for folks because regardless of whether or not the child is very very bright or has a lot of cognitive difficulties the core features of autism are still the same and the two core features of autism are difficulty with understanding the social world how it works where should i be looking uh what are, what are the most important pieces of social and emotional information in my world so it's that social perception problem that is the first core feature of autism the second core feature of autism is getting stuck on things sometimes we call this inflexible or repetitive behaviors okay and i like to just call it getting stuck because you can get stuck on a topic like for example i only want to talk to you about train schedules or i only want to talk to you about pokemon right i don't want to talk about anything else that's the only thing i want to talk about right so that's a case of what we call restricted interest where you're getting stuck on a particular topic or an interest but then there's also getting stuck on motor movements so flapping your hands for example or spinning in circles or twirling or seeing how things dangle or looking at things out of the corner of your eye. This this is sort of getting stuck on repetitive motor movements and how things feel and the sensory experience of that. So these two core features, understanding the social world and getting stuck on things, really are the the basic manifestation of what autism is. Now in a really high functioning person who's very cognitively able and you know bright or maybe even brilliant a lot of times what we see is we'll see problems with the reciprocity of the interaction so i'll talk to you but i won't make eye contact and i'm only going to talk to you about what i want to talk about right um and then you know their their getting stuck behaviors their repetitive behaviors are more about the restriction of interests or maybe i don't like it when the environment changes right so i don't like it when mom wears a hat and sunglasses um for kids who have more cognitive difficulties they may be nonverbal or minimally verbal or maybe they have some language but um they also struggle with the reciprocal interaction but they also are sometimes just going to struggle with basic skills like just being able to um you know sit near somebody and allow that person to speak they may have sensory issues that get them upset don't allow them to be in that environment they're also going to show poor eye contact but their eye contact's going to be really bad and they're not going to be able to go back and forth even one or two times right their reciprocity is going to be very very limited they may actually have blatant communication problems like they can't even communicate their wants and needs okay and then when you look at their repetitive behaviors they show a lot more of those repetitive sensory motor behaviors like my son's very low functioning he has cognitive difficulties and he'll stare at something over and over again that's dangling like he'll dangle a spider like a a plastic spider or a snake and he'll stare at that for literally hours if we allow him to when people talk about the spectrum though what they're really talking about is actually the cognitive spectrum so they're talking about you can have people that are brilliant on one end of the spectrum literally people that would be scientists engineers you know just amazing inventors And then on the other side of the spectrum you have people that are 
unfortunately, intellectually disabled and really struggle with even basic communication and tasks. Um, so that's really what people are talking about when they talk about the spectrum. You know, uh, you know, you you talked about regression and how you saw that with your own son. Um, you know, as we are looking, I mean, all of, all of us parents of young children, as we're looking for, um, you know, signs of this to make sure that we can give the best possible care in life to our children. Um, is it looking back at your son's development in hindsight, could you see signs earlier or was he a completely average child and then and then all of a sudden just started to regress yeah i wouldn't say he was completely average we did see some motor fine motor difficulties he would he had trouble with pointing um and and fine motor is a common early feature by the way that you see in kids with autism but but he was really actually very interactive he would make eye contact um he would try to engage in joint attention bids um, he would even imitate me. I remember one time I was mowing the, the grass in the backyard and he brought out his little mower and he would mow next to me. Um, so, <laughs> so he was even engaging in imitation. And then, you know, like I said, around 20 months, he really regressed. So in some kids, you do see some signs early on and then they regress. In other kids, they're fairly typical. And then you'll see the regression. So it does depend. And what there's no understanding of why that happens. Well, there's there's a I should say there's a little bit of understanding. So, like I, I mentioned, seizures and epilepsy that can sometimes precipitate mm-hmm. it. The other thing that we think might be happening is our brain is pruning at that time. So, very much like pruning a hedge, our brain is taking extra neurons because we we have extra neurons in our brain when we're born, and it's taking the extra neurons that aren't being used and it's it's getting rid of them. It's pruning them back. Okay, because you don't want to have all these extra neurons around. They actually add noise to the signal. Right. Hmm. And so you want to prune them back. Now, the question is, in autism, do we see under pruning or over pruning? Mm -hmm. In other words, is that process not working properly? And that may be part of the reason that we also see regression. Um, it's, It's a very difficult thing to study, though, as you can imagine, because the kids typically aren't diagnosed yet. Right. So it's very hard to study. But when people have tried to study it, number one, it is a real phenomena. And um, number two, some of the kids with regression do show signs before the regression. Not all of them, but some of them do show signs. Do you, as a as a parent to your son, with the kind of knowledge that you have um, and the and the sort of just deep expertise in this topic, do you feel like there are things that you do differently as a parent that other parents with uh, children with autism don't know about or would um, would yeah, that you could teach them to do differently? Uh, well, yeah, probably. My wife, I should mention, is also a board certified behavior analyst and works with kids with autism. Oh, my goodness. So I, I would say if, if my behavior is different, it's mostly because I learned from her. But, um, <laughs> Good but, husband. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> but, but, I, but I will say that parent training is crucial for people with, you know, caregivers of people with autism. In fact, the data is really clear. If parents get trained in early developmental and behavioral intervention approaches, that the kids whose parents are trained do better in the long run than the kids whose parent, parents aren't trained. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the answer is you do do things differently than typical parenting. Obviously, it's not just about having patience. It's also about learning how 
to prompt and reinforce appropriate behaviors. You know, as parents, a lot of times we sort of sit back and wait Mm -hmm. and just hopefully the child's developing, right? Hopefully they're doing the right things. And if they're not, maybe we'll punish them or something. Well, we don't want to take that approach in autism. What we want to do is be much more active, help our child to learn the right skill. So we prompt that skill, right? We give them a directive. And if they still don't follow the directive, we're going to prompt them through it. And then at the end of that, of exhibiting that skill, we're going to reinforce it. And we're even going to reinforce attempts, right? So not just when they do it right, but actually just when they're trying to do it, Mm -hmm. right? So we're going to reinforce them trying to do it. And then ultimately, we're trying to build those skills, very active approach, not just a passive hands-off approach. Can you give us, just walk us through an example of, of that sort of interaction in practice? So... In young kids, it might be actually teaching them to point, right? So you can actually help to shape their finger and show them how to point at things. And then you can also sort of help them to look back at the caregiver because when you're engaging in pointing behavior, it's not that you're pointing and just looking at the object. You're pointing at the object and then you're looking back at your mom or dad to show them what you're pointing at, right? So you can actually prompt this. You can show the child how to do it. And then you can show them how to look back and then you can reward them for doing it. Like, you know, you can make sure that they know that that's a great job that they're doing. You can reward them with praise or you can even reward them with tangible rewards, things that they like, you know. And as kids get older, another example would just be things like um, learning how to put on your shoes. So one of the things, the reason why I bring up putting on your shoes is because a lot of times we think of this as one behavior. But in actuality, it can be like 10 behaviors. You have to go get the shoes. You've got to organize them, make sure they're, you know, the left shoes on the left, the right shoes on the right. Then you've got to pull up the tongue and make sure you put your foot in correctly. Then you've got to, if there's tie, if they're tie shoes, you've got to actually learn how to tie, you know, in different steps for tying the shoes. Even if they're not tie shoes, you've got to make sure you pull the tongue back again and make sure that your foot's not stuck on the back. So there's a lot of steps there. And as parents, we kind of treat that as if it's like one thing, you know, go, go put on your shoes. Um, but in, with kids with autism, you want to treat it like it's a series of steps and you want to prompt and reinforce those steps. So we can use something called backward chaining where you actually prompt them through the whole process and then you back off on the last step. And when they learn the last step, then you back off on the second last step and the third last mm-hmm. step until they have the whole behavior together. So this is that sounds like it's good parenting for for any for any child. That is true. It actually is good parenting for any child. It's actually I always tell people not only is it good parenting for any child, but my wife uses it on me as well. She's taught <laughs> me how to get the garbage out on time on Mondays. Um, it's actually good behavior management for all human beings. That's so funny. You know, I I had dinner the the other night with my husband at a restaurant, and a, a woman next to us was extraordinarily friendly, and. And, um, and started offering us food and offering, you know, talking to us. And she had just had a visit from her son, who is now in his early 20s. Um, and she um, told us that he's autistic. And I guess he goes to a um, a school up in Cape Cod, some a famous school for, for autism up in Cape Cod. And she talked about how much as a child, I mean, she, there, there weren't the same resources now as there were when, when her son was young, but she talked about how she looked into diet 
um, in terms of changing how he would behave, that certain foods would would uh, may help him or not help him um, in terms of sleep. Uh, she was very into homeopathy. Um, is this is this something as well that you're finding? So we don't have any evidence that special diets are helpful, but. But I, I, I treat this very much like the behavior therapy we just talked about. If kids eat well, if they eat good diets, they do better. And that's especially true with a child with autism because obviously their brains need even more careful attention, right? So if they're getting the right nutrients, if they're getting um, things that their body can use more effectively, not so much sugar, you know, being able to eat the right foods and be healthy, then of course that's good. Now, a lot of times people have looked at special nutrition, special diets, sort of nutritional packages, supplements, things like that. We don't have any evidence really yet that that's effective. There was one study this year using a whole cocktail of different approaches that suggested that there might be some value in this kind of special diet supplement approach. But with all science, you have to replicate things, right? You have to make sure it's replicated. So we don't want to recommend that kind of stuff to families until we've replicated that. Um, but it, but nutrition is a really interesting area for any child, but especially kids with autism. And we do want to encourage more research and more science on uh, diets and nutrition. What about, I know that this is a very tender subject, but, you know, I had a lot of people tell me, beware of vaccines. Um, what has there been more research um, done, especially that I think it's the MMR that everybody gets very nervous about. Um, and I have to say, you know, when I do vaccinate my children, I, I spread them out. Um, but every single time I vaccinate my kids, I get nervous. Yeah. Um, and it's not unusual for parents of kids with autism to get nervous. Like I have a my son's 15 and my daughter's 14, and we were very nervous about vaccinating her. But the research in this case is pretty clear. Um, people have done epidemiological studies, large, large studies. We, we now have over hundreds of thousands of patients that have been studied, uh, kids that have been studied. And um, what they find is that the, that, that the kids who get a vaccination like MMR are at no greater risk for having autism than the kids who don't get the vaccination. Mm -hmm. So uh, the research evidence on that is pretty clear that uh, autism is not, uh, that vaccines aren't increasing the risk for autism. Um, at the same time, you know, you're right. This is a very sensitive issue for people. And, you know, one of the things that we say here is, you know, we want to respect people's experiences. And at the same time, as a society, it's really important that kids get their vaccines because if they don't get their vaccines, they can actually get really sick and in some cases die from diseases that we've been able to essentially eradicate, especially in the West. And we don't want to see kids dying, right? I mean, that's a terrible thing. And there is such a thing called herd immunity, which means that we all need to be getting our vaccines in order to make sure that all of us are protected. Mm -hmm. Um Right. And we don't want to see large segments of the population not vaccinating because in that case, it can actually bring back the conditions that we've gotten rid of. You um, you mentioned you have a daughter who's just a year younger than your son. Um, what was there you know, for families dealing with autism and a child and not having it present in all of their kids? How do you uh, uh, how do you 
recommend they deal with that? Are there anything you said, you know, you were specifically aware for your daughter, but um, but, you know, how do you make sure my best friend in college, her brother is uh, is very low functioning autistic, a little bit younger than her. But, you know, now as a 27 year old, 28 year old, he's. 280 pounds, six foot five. I mean, it's a whole, it's a very uh, disruptive experience for the family, but it's also one where they've come together around it too. So what, what, what's your advice for families with multiple children dealing with, um, dealing with this kind of. Yeah. Well, for siblings, it is tough, uh, especially if it's hard to, for them to understand or connect with their sibling with autism. Yeah. But I, I always encourage parents to educate their, the siblings, you know, let them know that this is, that their sibling is not being a jerk or, you know, it's not that they're um, being mean, that actually that there's problems with appropriately interacting and communicating. And um, luckily, I think there's something that happens in autism with siblings that is a real positive here. And that's that the siblings do tend to learn this pretty quickly. And ultimately, many of the siblings become just amazing people you know, really empathetic people. Many of these folks go into developmental areas, whether it's teaching or therapy, uh, advocacy, support services. And to be honest, like over the years, some of our best therapists for my son were, uh, were siblings of, uh, who had, you know, a brother or sister with autism. And so, you know, if there is an upside here, it's really that the siblings oftentimes do adjust well and actually can be tremendous advocates and therapists and do wonderful things. And the other part about autism that I think helps other family members is that it can give you a sense of meaning and purpose. You know, it's ter- and oftentimes it's very difficult to watch your family member struggle, obviously. But at the same time, for me, it gave me a purpose. It gave me a sense of, okay, I'm going to help my son. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to be there for him. I'm going to try to make his life better. And people like my son, I want to make their life better too. So, you know, it isn't all negative, right? I mean, you can find the positives in these situations. And for higher functioning people with autism, what we're seeing too is that they can be great advocates. You know, they can really, um, be incredible, um, uh, people that push for a, a better employment, better rights, better services, better supports, better awareness, understanding and acceptance. And, you know, that's fantastic as well. Were you in this field before your son was diagnosed? Yeah, I was a clinical psychologist and I was studying kids, but I wasn't in autism. And then when my son was diagnosed, I shifted my career into autism. And and that's when my wife got her BCBA and she started to work with people with autism. And so we kind of have made autism our our sort of family mission, but uh, you're the per- you're the perfect example yeah. of what we were just talking about. It's like, okay, you know, here is a problem. I'm going to make the world a better place and turning you know this into a major positive. Yeah. What are some of what are some of the therapies? Just because you both live and breathe this, what are some of the therapies that you found to be most beneficial? And because my understanding is that it's all about interpreting the environment. It's like how sensory things or experiential things are interpreted by the brain. So I, you know, a lot of integrative therapy and it's, I, you know, obviously there's physical therapy and speech therapy and occupational therapy. What, what are some of the most effective new technologies or new modalities that are really being used? Yeah. So the probably the most effective modality that we have evidence for is behavioral intervention, right? 
Now, unfortunately, we don't understand the sensory side of autism as well as we should and could probably. And so we don't exactly know how to, you know, we know that we need to accommodate that sometimes. Sometimes we need to help kids sort of get used to sensory experiences. Um, but we don't really understand that as well as we could. What we do understand is how to help kids develop new functional skills, new functional behaviors, whether it's putting on your clothes or your shoes or brushing your teeth or, you know, uh, making sure you remember your book bag or, you know, whatever those functional skills are. We do know how to help kids with that. And behavior therapy is actually quite good at that. If you look at the early studies on developmental and behavioral interventions like ABA or Early Start Denver model, what you see is that kids oftentimes show big improvements in functional or adaptive behaviors. And they can also show big improvements in cognitive behaviors, language and IQ and other areas with these kinds of interventions. So, you know, our, those are our most effective interventions. For kids who are sort of higher functioning, more cognitively able, um, social skills interventions can be really effective. So actively teaching how to interact, how to understand what other people are thinking and feeling, how to ask questions, how to start and end conversations, how to repair conversations, how to make friends, you know, and ask for phone numbers and call people and follow up and things like that. So those kinds of interventions can be really effective too. And then the other thing we're learning is that kids with autism become, you know, adolescents with autism and then adolescents become adults. And so that transition process is difficult for all of us, right? Adolescence is a tough time for everybody. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we, we can do with adolescents with autism is help them to get the right kinds of either educational experiences or employment experiences, vocational training that allows them to be more effective as adults. You know, unfortunately, about 90 percent of adults with autism are unemployed or underemployed. And we need to be able to help these individuals get into gainful, supported or independent employment, competitive employment if they're able to. And then we need to help the employer, employers understand, accept them, bring them in and utilize their skills. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is we are underutilizing people with autism as a society. We need to utilize people better. We need to help them to be as productive as possible. So, you know, there's a lot of adult transition programs that are starting to become more and more evidence based and hopefully will increase that over time and be able to help people become really productive and functional and happier adults. Fantastic. I know that I know that we have to let you go. You know, for for people who are listening, I've I know and I think we all know that, you know, different things like cancer research and, uh, you know, HIV and AIDS research, autism research is so, so, so important. Can you give us a, a, a few different places if people feel like giving or getting involved or just learning simply more. learning more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, are there a couple of couple different um, places that people can focus on? Obviously, I would really strongly encourage people to go to our website, autismspeaks.org. Uh, we have all kinds of information from what is autism to resources, toolkits, medical toolkits, and also um, functional and healthcare toolkits. Um, we, we have a ton of resources on our website. Um, the other thing I really want to encourage people to do is Autism Cares is a bill that is an authorization bill in the government, in the, in the um, legislature right now. And we need that authorization bill to pass. It's the primary bill for funding autism research in the federal government. 
And we need that research in order to make advances in all the areas that we've already talked about. And so I'd really encourage people to make sure that their representatives are aware that they care about Autism Cares as a bill and it's important to them and that they want to see it pass. So that's another thing people can do to take a step forward, a positive step forward. Obviously, if people donate to Autism Speaks, what we try to do as the chief science officer, what I try to do is we try to make sure our research is as impactful as possible. We want to fund studies that are innovative in new areas. Um, we try to fill gaps that maybe haven't been studied very much before. And ultimately, our goal here is to help people in their lives. And so we try to fund as much as we can practical research that can make a difference. Um, so I would you know, really encourage people, even before I joined Autism Speaks, I went to the walks and those are some of the best days you have as a family with autism because you go out there and you don't have to worry about anything. Everybody understands. You get to be around people that totally get it. And um, so I'd really encourage people to go to your local walk and participate, uh, raise money through that. Or, you know, obviously you can always go to our website and donate as well. Fantastic. We're going to ask you also what your favorite thing is. And, and your favorite thing, I think, with this one might be a, just a really great um, tool, something something that, you know, people would, would resource win, a, win a similar situation, a yeah. resource, something that, that would benefit from. Yeah, the thing... Probably my favorite resource that we offer is our 100 days kit. And the reason why I love that is because uh, a lot of parents don't know what to do at the beginning. You know, even when the pediatrician does screen uh, it's off and you get a diagnosis, it's oftentimes really hard to figure out what to do next. I remember feeling paralyzed myself and, you know, maybe a little depressed as well. And what I love about the 100 days kit is it gives you a chance to start moving forward in a positive direction. And, you know, momentum is everything. And if you get a little bit of momentum going in a positive direction, then you can make a world of difference. And so I love our 100 Days Kit. I love all of our resources and our toolkits, but our 100, my 100 day, the 100 Days Kit is probably, I think, the most important and my favorite. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you. This was so fantastic and, you know, really great information. I know our, our listeners are going, to, are going to love it. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Mom That was Dr. Thomas Frazier. Um, you know, if you guys want to get involved, remember AutismSpeaks.org um, is a great resource. And, uh, and Autism Cares, the yeah. bill. Yeah. Yes, the bill. Very important. Thank you, Daphne. Um, the bill that he was that he was talking about. I loved the this, you know, the first hundred days. Because whether, you know, regardless of what it is that the news that's given to you and then having hope and just kind of th saying, you know, like, I'm going down this road. Here's a path. And now all of a sudden we're making this this turn over here <laughs> and I don't have a map for it. And I don't even have a thought of a map for it. It's a completely new territory. And then so to know that there is that plan out there that's going to help you and give you, give you some stability again. And, you know, this is something that a lot of people deal with. Um, that community, I think he yes. described really well, going on walks, being around families who have children with autism so that it doesn't feel like you have to explain anything or be nervous or, you know, or, or, or just be with people that totally understand um, everything that happens in your family, I think is, he, he described it being a really 
hopeful and fun experience. And I think that that's an amazing way to get involved, whether or not this is something that you deal with intimately in your own family. So um, thank you. Thank you to Dr. Frazier for joining us. And thank you guys for tuning in. And now it is time for our favorite things. It's time for our favorite things. So Dr. Frazier obviously shared his 100 days research, which I think is amazing. So my favorite thing this week is actually uh, a learning and sort of toy program. It's called MontyKids.com. I saw this on Instagram. A, a girlfriend of mine had uh, had put this on her stories. I thought it was such a cute idea. Um, they're, they're at-home Montessori programs and toys designed, um, obviously with safety in mind, for ages birth to three. So if you're looking for something he described, was, you know, early on, you want to be playing with your kids um, in a way that engages them and gets them to focus first on, you know, first, even as they're very, very young on the sound of your voice and the repetition of that and then on your face and then on the pointing and all these things that um, that some of these Montessori tools and games are actually specifically designed to do, but you don't actually have to think about them. You don't have to think about engineering for it that way. Um, and uh, they just keep it really fun and, uh, and engaging for your child. And I always look, I have no problem finding great toys for my kids as they get older. But I think sometimes it can be, you know, other than a couple stacking toys, it can get a little bit redundant what there is out there that's for younger children. So um, just looking through this site again, it's Monty Kids. And we guys, just so you remember, um, because we we do get a lot of questions about where to find our favorite things. We always put direct links to what we're talking about in the description of each episode of the podcast to make it really simple for you. So we will put this there and you can check out. Um, one one little graph that they have on the site is interesting, which is that 85% of the brain is formed by age three. So the more you can do to really engage kids with fun educational toys early on, the better off they are for life. 100%. Um, mine today is a, um, is a food because we talked a little bit about uh, nutrition. Um, many of you guys know that my, my home is, is dairy free and it's not because um, we have, you know, that we're lactose intolerant. It's just, I believe that that is a very healthy way to eat. Um, that being said, you know, if we go out and we're at like a birthday party and the kids want to have ice cream, they can have ice cream. Or like if there's a cake and we know that there's dairy in it, that that's okay. Um, but one of our favorite um, at-home milk um Milk in in quotes, like milk from not M-Y-L-K. from not okay. from exactly <laughs> milk not well. It's still milk because it's milked. It's just oh. not dairy milk. So our hmm. non dairy milk, the brand is Elmhurst, and I like them for multiple reasons. One, the sugar content is pretty low because some of these beverages can get very sugary. We love their oat milk. Um, another reason is because they're not as expensive. As um, a lot of these these dairy milks, you know, I mean, out there it can get really, really, really expensive for for these milks. I get them in bulk. Um, you can order them online, and um, and so one thing I've gotten really into as well because I am a a coffee drinker is the hemp creamer. Mm. Super super yummy. Um, and again, so eating a lot of people are talking about eating plant based, and I am a big advocate for that. And so this is one of my favorite things. And my children will have it. Not the coffee, obviously, <laughs> but the uh, the oat milk and the almond milk and the 
peanut milk and the hazelnut milk. There's a lot of different. Just because they literally just sent me this product to try and I tasted it and I was blown away. There, There's this company called Malibu Milk, M-Y-L-K, Ooh. and it's flax milk. Yes, love flax it milk. was delicious. Yes. I mean, like crazy. The texture was really good. I didn't try, I haven't tried frothing it yet to make like a cappuccino mm-hmm. or whatever, which is always my actual litmus test is can I, <laughs> can I really replace this in my is, coffee? Is there foam? Is there foam? <laughs> but in terms of like for cereal or for a glass of milk or whatever, it's, they call it the fiber milk and it's, um, it has a ton of omega-3s in it. And it, again, I was blown away by how good it tastes. So, um, just, yeah, again, I, I love, actually, I think the flourishing of nut milks and dairy milks and the nice thing about flax milk is it's it's not friendly if mm-hmm. you're a nut-free fa- household um there's so many good options out there there's so many once oat milk was invented oh it's just game great over because it's like so creamy thick and creamy oh my goodness um but yes you do have to be careful of those added sugars and that's when one of the reasons i like the elmhurst is, is and it's also not like the gross one that's like not sweetened because you know as healthy as i am those those ones i just oh, can't no, drink this, it this not sweetened malibu milk that i tried I, that was my favorite one i guess they put like a little cinnamon in it or something. It has to have so some, it it has, has, they have to they have to address the the need for some <laughs> sort of something. So this one does taste really good. Uh, All right, guys, thank you for listening. Please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review. Nice reviews, please, 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 please <laughs> spread the word. That's such a big deal. You know, this is all about a mom community. Daphne and I came up with the idea for this podcast, having play dates and saying, hey, wouldn't it be fun to like, you know, take the conversations that we're having and then just bring it to the masses. So the bigger that you can grow our mommy play date, we would be very, very, very excited about it because that was our mission. Um, Follow us uh, at MomBrain on Instagram. Follow us on uh, on YouTube on on our MomBrain channel. And don't forget to email us, mombrainpod at gmail.com. Thanks until next time. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. This is MomBrain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. MomBrain is a Gallery Media Group original production.